And a special welcome to those joining us from the Love Fest on the Second Life Sim of Ravenheart. I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. It is Lovecraft Month here at the gallery. Now, I know we all have different opinions about the life and works of H.P. Lovecraft. You may hold him to be the master of horror and the macabre, or or you might think that he's simply a trashy pulp writer whose works are best encountered while one is still a teenager. Whatever your opinion, there is no denying the impact he and his writing circle has had on weird fiction. He has become quite the controversial character of late, as his papers suggest that he was an insufferable racist and a ne'er-do-well who lived off the indulgence of his wife Sonia, until she got fed up with him, that is, and headed west. He never did finalize the divorce papers, as she found out well after she had married again. The cosmic horror subgenre, which Lovecraft is so well known for, depends on not grotesquery or bloodshed, but rather that singular sense of dread that arises when confronted with an otherness. Who other than someone with Mr. Lovecraft's prejudices could feel that revulsion so acutely. I'm not here to be an apologist for him, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, really, did Mr. Lovecraft ever stop to think that the good people of Innsmouth might like who they are? No. No, of course he did not. I'd be surprised if he even knew how to swim. I've been to Innsmouth, and let me tell you, the seafood is to die for. Oysters like no other. He would have done a little better to try and take in some of the local culture, I think, than gibber like a hippie on his first LSD trip. But I digress. Our exhibit of Lovecraftian horror for this evening is brought to us by Shane Holbach. Mr. Holbach lives in Chicago, where he writes software by day and avoids writing stories by night. His fiction has appeared in Analog, Intergalactic Medicine Show, and all four of the Escape Artist podcasts, among others. He blogs at shaneholbock.com and can be found on Twitter at 
Shane Holbach. It will be read for us this evening by Mr. C.B. Drogi. Bright and Falling Like an Avenging Angel by Shane Holbach. September 13th, 1941. James, by now you are probably wondering what has happened to me. As should be apparent, I am not back in residence at Stratford, though classes by now must be back in session. I decided not to return by dirigible. I find it is ever so much more interesting to travel by steam carriage in the old-fashioned way. It may seem a bit quaint, but I find it refreshing to slow down and really enjoy the journey. I find one hears the most interesting stories. It was just by this method that I encountered a most interesting story indeed, which shall explain my absence shortly. As I was traveling through Calhoun, Kentucky, a flyspeck backwater if there ever was one, I shared my steam carriage with a country priest traveling between his parishes. As he knew the area, I inquired about the local history. As you can imagine, there was not much to tell. However, Calhoun was the site of a fairly bloody, if ultimately unimportant, battle during the Civil War. And as I fancy myself a bit of a Civil War buff, it caught my attention. However, I was ever so much more interested when I learned the singular peculiarity of this battle. The skirmish itself was interrupted momentarily when a meteor streaked across the sky, landing not far from the battlefield itself. I can imagine I have your attention now, though I can almost hear you muttering, Charles, you fool, chasing after a fifty-year-old meteorite. However, I tell you this, this is not half-scrambled local legend as likely to be moonshine dream is real. My hope is to find documentation as part of the official military record, perhaps even precise coordinates. I know that it's a chance at best, but wouldn't it be nice to have the department a step ahead of those windbags at Miskatonic for a change? In any event, I am staying on for a bit. I should know one way or another shortly. Yours, Charles. September 15th, 1941. James, I am quite pleased to report that my intuitions have proven correct. I have located innumerable records and accounts of the battle and the incident in question. I believe I have sufficient information for a search, and I shall endeavor to employ local help and begin a thorough investigation as soon as possible. Of course, local superstitions and legends have sprung up like weeds regarding the entire area around the battlefield. I don't need to remind you of the children's campfire tales that have grown up around Gettysburg, Antietam, or the famous Cog's Teeth. In any case, I hope to find at least a few rational men who will help in my search. Surely some local must be as enamored as I at the beauty and mystery of an object from the cold reaches of space, never touched by the hands of man. The battle itself has proven to be quite interesting. It was an extraordinarily bloody battle. Entire regiments were lost without a single survivor, and neither side seems to be able to claim much of a victory. The Union soldiers were encamped north and east of Calhoun, with a modicum of cover and the high ground to their advantage. Additionally, they had a battery of six 12-pound howitzers positioned on the ridge, though they seemed to be strangely stationary. In fact, the Union had almost no mechanized units at all, nor any aerial support, their dreadnoughts being off at Perryville. Perhaps they felt their position sufficiently secure to rely mostly on common infantrymen. The Confederates, on the other hand, supplied as they were with sugarcane ethanol, were swarming with steam exos of various shapes and sizes. There were a full two companies of dual Gatling brush hogs who immediately started to make short work of the Yankee infantry. 
Unfortunately for the Union, there had been heavy rain for days before the battle, and the heavy brass feet of the Exos became hopelessly mired in the mud. Unfortunately for the Union, the early morning Confederate attack was well camouflaged by the fog, completely neutralizing the 12-pounders. The commanding officer, Colonel Absalom McCook, frustrated with the ineffectualness of the guns and the heavy losses due to the Confederate steam exos, ordered the guns to fire into the fog, doing as much damage to his own troops as to the Confederates. Uh, forgive me, my enthusiasm carried me away. The salient part is that, early in the afternoon, the meteor could be seen, quote, bright and falling like an avenging angel, end quote. It must have been quite a sight. No report is lacking for a mention, and the battle seems to have temporarily halted for its passage. The meteor landed just east of the battlefield, close enough that the concussive impact overturned several of the smaller exos. Both sides sent orders to investigate, though it was late in the battle and chaos was firmly entrenched, so it is unclear whom, if anybody, responded. In any case, the numerous accounts serve as a crude triangulation of the strike. With any luck, we shall begin our search on the morrow. Yours, Charles. September 20th, 1941. James, with the help of Robert, John, and William, three stout local men I have hired to help, I have succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. Yet this success has been marred by something of an even more incredible and shocking nature. More on that in a moment. Although the countryside has generally healed over the interim, we were able to locate the remains of a largish crater about two miles east of the battlefield. There we began to dig, and very shortly, we broke through into some kind of underground cavern. The cavern itself is natural and clearly predates the meteor strike. The meteor must have punched through into the cavern when it landed. The cavern is enormous, big enough to fit University Hall with room left over for lunch counter besides. There are tunnels and branches as well, though we have not endeavored to explore them. It could take months to map the cave properly. I have recovered the meteorite itself, and I assure you it has been well worth the effort. I would normally rush back to Stratford immediately, of course, if not for the other exceedingly peculiar discovery. James, I can't begin to describe what we have here. I can't make head or tails of it. It will take a tremendous amount of study, but the cave was full, full of the remains of soldiers and their artifacts. I have never seen so many skeletons in all my life. I tell you, it was quite a shock. As little sense as it makes, it seems that the soldiers actually carried the battle underground. There are even hulking, half-corroded Confederate exos, though how or why they brought them inside is unknown. The fighting appears to have been fierce enough to cause a cave-in, which is what kept the cavern hidden all these years. There are other peculiar irregularities as well, but I cannot organize my thoughts at the moment to say more. As to the meteorite, it was not particularly difficult to find, as it seems to glow faintly in the dark. This is not the only otherworldly property it displays. It is hard in the extreme, and we were unable to chip or crack the stones. Indeed, I say stones. The force of the impact, at least, was enough to break the meteorite into several fist-sized chunks. The largest is not much smaller than my head. I know they are of a piece, because they fit together like a puzzle. They remind me of nothing so much as a largish, spent eggshell. In any case, you can see why I must stay for the moment. I have sent for Professor Rathbone of the History Department, but I must please ask you to keep this quiet for the time being until the site can be secured for Stratford. I trust you implicitly, of course, but the fewer who know, the better. 
It is a most unprecedented discovery, and therefore entirely too valuable to let word of it get out. I'm sure you understand. Yours, Charles. September 23rd, 1941 James, I have been at the site almost exclusively for the past few days. Nevertheless, I am still unable to understand what I am seeing. It is clear that a battle waged within the cavern itself. What is not clear is who exactly fought it. The remains seem to indicate, and I tread carefully here, that Union and Confederate soldiers fought side by side regardless of their former loyalty. They do not seem to be arrayed against each other. Rather, they are deployed against a second smaller force. This force, too, seems to have consisted of both Union and Confederate infantrymen, though the remains of the second unit are so jumbled together it is difficult to make any sense at all. I confess to feeling completely lost. While I admit it is not my area of study, such a realignment of forces seems completely unprecedented. Perhaps Professor Rathbone can make some sense of it when he arrives. Unfortunately, the wind is extremely unfavorable for a westward-bound dirigible, and I fear he may be delayed. The entire unexpected scene has made the hired men extremely skittish, and they refuse to come any further than the cave entrance. This seems compounded by the fact that every morning when we arrive, the mouth of the cave seems littered with, well, with feathers. James, I tell you, it's the damnedest thing. We clear them away and new ones appear again in the morning. Perhaps there's a gaseous exhalation from the cave which kills any avian unlucky to settle at the wrong time. I do not know what other explanation would suffice. Though I can say with some certainty, the air in the cavern seems pure enough. In any case, I cannot say I blame the men for their disquiet. Yours, Charles. September 24th, 1941. James, Robert and John have refused to stay on with me. In the end, I'm afraid their imaginations got the best of them. Robert claims to have seen strange animal tracks in the areas around the cave, jackrabbits with remarkable strides as if moving at tremendous speeds, or crow tracks that hop more or less in a straight line for a mile or more without ever taking to the air. John has seen them as well, and other strange signs that he claims are unnatural in nature. Thus far, I have retained William, but I am not sure for how much longer. I don't know if it is an association with such superstitious men, or simply being myself unaccustomed to so many human remains, but I have lost the taste for entering the cave. Inside I have begun to experience the most peculiar sense of being watched, of being, well, quite frankly, hungered after. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it makes the back of my neck crawl. Forgive me. It sounds quite irrational when written out. I suppose it would unnerve any man being down in that enormous tomb with hundreds of blank-eyed skulls staring blankly as their flesh and clothes fall about them in tatters. It's no wonder one's mind wanders to flights of paranoia. In fact, I am feeling quite uneasy in regards to the site. I have decided to encamp nearby until Professor Rathbone arrives so as to keep constant surveillance on the wretched hole. I have begged William to stay as well, and he has agreed, so long as we stay on the ridge some hundred yards off from the opening. I don't believe he will go any closer. In any case, I have the meteorite, and there is no reason to return to that ill-fated cavern. The rest is for someone else to puzzle over. Yours, Charles. September 24th, 1941. James, 
Sometime after one in the morning, a storm swept through the area. Being so meagerly provisioned as we were, it was quite impossible to sleep. The rain came in sheets, and the lightning was almost continuous, with thunder that rattled my very teeth. I thank William for supplying such a sturdy tent. At times I feared it would blow quite away. I felt drawn to the cave, and peering cautiously out through the tent opening, the dark cave mouth held me with a fascination that almost drowned out the chaos of the storm. It seemed that there were cries in the wind and furtive movements in the valley, but at that time I was certain the storm and the late hour, not to mention the stress of the preceding days, were playing tricks on my senses. And then, James, I saw it. A brilliant flash of lightning lit the valley, and I saw for a moment a beast so wretched and loathsome I can scarcely recount it. It ambled on all fours with the dark, bulky body of a bear. It seemed in the dim light that the body was not regular, with bumps or protrusions at random intervals. I was at some distance, of course, and through wind and rain, but I did not detect a head other than a fleshy lump, perhaps bigger and more protruding than the rest, in the direction that seemed to be the front. All in all, it resembled nothing so much as a giant lump of clay, half finished by its maker. To see such a thing moving! Well, the flash lasted but a second, and in the darkness immediately after I lost all track of the creature, I might not have found it again at the next if my gaze hadn't been drawn once more to that scar in the ground. At the next flash of lightning, the thing was standing at the lip, and I would swear it was looking right at me. In that brief instant, it slipped into the hole and was gone. I do not know what it was, perhaps the astral shape of some restless soldier, but I know that I am awake, and I know what I saw. I write now from a vantage where I can see the cave, and I hesitate even to glance down at the words, lest it slip out of the cave and creep upon me unawares. I will not sleep this night. Charles I am in William's house, and dawn is just lightening the horizon. I don't know where William is, in the darkness. He may have... I have these letters and naught else. The thing from the cave, I think it is growing, or absorbing, or... It pursued us through the storm, and William told me which way to run. We were separated in the dark. It is much faster than it appears. It runs like a centipede with all of its limbs. It was huge, monstrous. I think it was hunting us. It came out of the hole. It must have been down there the whole time. They must have seen it. That's what they were fighting. But how did it survive? William is at the... James, you must not let Professor Rathbone disturb it. This is of utmost importance. I only pray it is not too late to stop him. Promise me you will come if you must, but he must not disturb it. The horrors I have seen. James, I crouched in William's house, hoping to find shelter there. I heard a rattle at the door, and I thought it was William, at long last. I rushed to the window, but it was not William, not exactly. William's head, his face, sat atop that grotesque mask of disparate animal shapes and parts. The protrusions on the shaggy black bear's body have grown into paws and claws and talons, dozens of them. On its back were the beginnings of wings, jet black raven's feathers as yet too small to provide lift. 
From the middle of a tangle of animal limbs, it extended one pale arm ending in a human hand. William's hand. And that loathsome monster was using it to try the door. I must have gasped because it turned William's face to grin at me. I say to you now, it was the very face of Satan himself. His teeth, its teeth, were sharp as any great cat's, and tiny goat's horns jutted from just above the brow. The thing held my eyes as that lone, long-fingered hand stretched toward the door once more, gripping the handle like a handshake, as William's hand must have done a hundred times before. Nothing could be so normal as that hand on the door, if it wasn't for the abomination on the other side. I ran. So help me, I ran to the beat of the devil, and terror so overcame me that I don't quite remember the flight. There were pieces, fleeing up the stairs, prying open a window, hearing the thing beneath me in the house, crouching in a ditch with my left ankle badly jarred. I don't know whether I eluded it in the countryside or whether it escaped to its den in the light of morning. At first, I thought it could alter its shape, adjusting its form to whatever was useful at the moment perhaps mimicking William as some kind of cruel joke. But it knew where William told me to go, knew where the house was, and knew how to operate the door. I think it absorbed William, or incorporated him somehow. I think I finally know what caused the Yankees and Confederates to fight side by side at the battle in the cavern. That is related to the meteorite, there can be no doubt. The timing is too coincidental. Why did it come here? This thing, this angel of death? Was it sent here? For what purpose? Could it be the advisory cast from the heavens as in the story? Or was it an accident, mere chance, that in the vastness of space the seed landed on our tiny planet? The odds are astronomical unless… Could they truly be seeds, sown through the cosmos by some unfathomable power, millions upon millions until one landing here was likely, nay, inevitable? I leave these fevered notes with Robert who all too willingly believes my tale. James, one way or another you will not see me again. I do not consider myself a godly man, though I could see my duty clearly if I were. I do, however, consider myself, above all else, a rational man. I tell you now, with what rationality I can muster, that I must do anything in my power to stop this thing. After what it did to William, I tell you, the thing must be stopped at any cost. I go momentarily to the hole, with what armament I can find. Robert has a family and will not go with. It is too much to hope that any of the old munitions or corroded exos would be functional. In fact, I am counting on it. The thing seems to be averse to the sun, and I only hope it will buy me enough time to fire boilers on at least one exo close to the cave entrance, after which I will try to hold the beast until the boiler overpressurizes. Based on the pitted look of the tanks, I hope this will not take long. I don't think I can hold it for long. I dare not hope it can be killed by such a blast, but perhaps I can at least contain it beneath the ground once more. James, for God's sake, this wretched thing, this extraterrestrial demon, is not meant for this world. It must be contained. If I should fail, if I am successful, for humanity's sake, do not allow Rathbone to disturb the site. It must remain sealed. Goodbye, James. Keep an eye to the skies. There may be more of them. Charles. Well, that didn't end well at all. But then, 
What did you expect from a Lovecraftian? By the by, do stop by our gift shop. We have three collections of our stories available in both digital and trade paperback formats for those of you who would rather read than listen. Our fourth volume should arrive in November, which I believe should be a jazz and diesel era theme. We will need one more reading session to fill it, and that will be in the first three weeks of October. We will need to settle our reading session before the end of October, as some of our staff want to go NaNoWriMo in November. All proceeds go toward keeping the gallery open, which includes paying our excellent authors and narrators for their services, and our server fees and the use of music. Your patronage is always appreciated. Frankly, I'd rather sell you a book than ask for donations. Less bad karma. That is all the business I have for this evening, so it is time for us to close. Do visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. Our theme song, as always, is Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. This episode was produced in August of 2018. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com